This audio version of Hearts of Purpose by Gail Grace Nordskug has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by the host of the Monstrous Regiment podcast. Please visit reconstructionistradio.com to access the rest of this audiobook and many more. Chapter 2 Cindy Reynolds, Director, Thresholds Ministries Incorporated, China. Focus Ministry to Orphans in Linjiang. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2 9. Dear friend, I write the following in the hope that it will lift you, encourage you, and help you to understand just how precious you are to Him, to God. Where you are today, right now, no matter what. Some of us come to Him willingly, some of us because there is no place else to go. It still amazes me how I struggled for solutions on my own for so many years, even having been introduced to Him as a child. I knew about Him, but I didn't know Him. I had to come to a time of helplessness and hopelessness before I surrendered everything and only had Him as a solution. My message is simple. Follow God. Just go, my friend. Believe in His strength, wisdom, and authority, and in His ability to work through you. When I was a little girl living in Denver, Colorado, I used to sit at Great Grandma Willard's feet while she stitched quilt squares by hand and told me stories of the miracles she had experienced and had witnessed in her lifetime. She didn't much trust doctors, but she chose to depend upon the Lord for her own healings and for those of her family and friends. She had long white hair pinned up in a bun and wore lovely, soft-patterned dresses which inevitably became pieces of her quilt squares sewn into warm and comforting quilts. We all received one. I still have the pieces of the last one she was working on tucked away in her trunk, which I have in my attic. Many strong Christians have inspired me in my life, but none like she did. I learned to pattern my quiet times after her example and worked hard to have my first grown-up Bible show the wear of hours spent in study like hers did. I learned to expect miracles. I grew up in a loving family with a mother, father, two younger brothers, and great-grandma Willard, Although we struggled financially, we didn't worry about it, and I was loved, protected, and blessed. My mother cooked wonderful meals from what she had available. She baked cakes, and she cared for her family along with all of the lost and broken critters my father or I brought home. My little brothers were naughty, but I adored them, and when I earned babysitting money, I took them in turns on my bike to buy popsicles at the corner store. My family called me the religious one. We did not attend church together as my father was an adamant non-believer. He made it difficult for my mother or brothers to attend church, but he allowed me to go, saying that it was okay for girls. My mother would sign me up for Sunday school in the fall and then drop me off on Sunday morning so that I could have a religious education. I enjoyed my classes and dutifully memorized the weekly scripture verses. Mother and I would repeat them together before bed every night. This was a gift that would get me through challenges to come. I owned those verses. No one could take them away from me ever. No one could ever take them away. When I was grown, I married the handsome boy next door, Dean Reynolds, in 1967. We grew up as best friends, dated throughout high school into college, and were married in the summer before his senior year. He was and still is the love of my life. We will celebrate 50 years of marriage this year. Dean and our four children, Rob, Brad, and his wife, Amy, Melissa, and her husband, Francisco, and Bo, our youngest, plus our three grandchildren, are my world.
1993, Dean was asked as manager of engineering for Cellite, a division of World Minerals, to evaluate the possibility of building a diatomaceous processing plant for the company located just outside of Linjiang City, Jilin Province, People's Republic of China. Diatomaceous earth is earth made from fossilized remains of tiny aquatic organisms called diatoms. Their skeletons are made of a natural substance called silica, and over a long period of time they accumulate as sediment in streams, lakes, and oceans. Linjung lies on the border of China and North Korea. Even now, this is a very isolated and strictly communist-controlled location. He and his team broke ground in 1994 after several trips there to plan, negotiate with the government, hire workers, translators, and office staff, to build roads, to accomplish all of the endlessly impossible tasks necessary to begin to build such an enormous project there in that place. Dean began to travel to Linjung to work three weeks at a time, returning home to work at the California office near our home for two weeks before returning again. It was thrilling to hear his stories, but it was a very dangerous place for him and for all of the men and women who worked there. Our church and family of friends faithfully prayed for him and for all of the people involved. I would often wake in the night to pray for him there, trusting God to hear my prayers for his safety. One day when he was working there, I awoke with an increasing pain in the joints of my hands and wrists. Aching and tired, recovering from pneumonia, I had gone to bed early the night before. Sleeping fitfully, not able to get comfortable, I got up and took aspirin, hoping to dull the burning in my hands and feet. This was the first battle of what would become my war with rheumatoid arthritis. A series of doctors and specialists would do their best to help me, but were losing ground, and this very painful illness continued to claim more territory in my body. I was careful to follow a doctor's every instruction, but to no avail. In time, I was forced to leave my job as an interior decorator. One day, in 1992, while praying in my sunny California kitchen, I remembered whispered stories of an elderly woman named Peggy who was said to have remarkable results with prayerful healing. I was desperate enough to call her. Gracious and kind on the phone, she offered to come to my home to pray for me. I remember thinking, what do I have to lose? In the end, what I lost was my suffering, fear of the biblical laying on of hands, and the determination to struggle through on my own strength. With Peggy's help, I grew in faith quickly. Desperate to live and to heal from this illness, I spent hours in the Word and in prayer every day. As my husband was working overseas and my children were away in school or working, I was alone in our home with an insatiable need not just to heal but suddenly to know more of this Jesus that I had believed I knew but really didn't understand. I fell in love with him all over again and completely gave my life, strength, and soul to him. Peggy continued to come regularly for weeks to pray with me, and in time we prayed together for others. She taught me to pray in the Spirit, to trust God with my life, and to believe that I had a future in him. Together we witnessed the miraculous through prayer, and it became our expectation that God would answer. He was and remains faithful. In time I began to have a knowing that I would join my husband in Lin Zheng. I felt God speaking to me about a place I had never seen. While praying for him while he was gone, I had visions of walking down a village street with babies and children waiting for me to gather them up. I began to have detailed visions of a dirt road between low earthen houses. There were babies left on windowsills and little children waiting at the end of the road. I had a growing conviction that we would go there and that there were children to rescue and possibly an orphanage to build. I began to share with my closest friends that I believed God might be calling us to China to build an orphanage. Unimaginable! 
Some thought that I had lost my mind, that I had really gotten carried away with this prayer business. When Dean returned from his trips, we shared in private about what had happened during the trip. I hung on his every word and story. Then, one evening, having just come home, he pulled out from his briefcase a shard of torn paper and handed it to me quietly. On it he had copied a line of doggerel from C.T. Studd. Some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bells. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I think that we are supposed to go to Lin Jung together, he said. I know, I replied. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying to me in my spirit, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. We were not sent to Lin Jung as missionaries. We moved there for my husband's work. Dean was called to build the large processing plant for them. I was simply called to be his wife in this remote and isolated place and to help by using my skills as an interior decorator for offices and company housing while he accomplished his assignment. We moved to Linjung, Jilin Province, PRC, in 1996. It is located on the banks of the Yalu River, the boundary between China and the People's Republic of North Korea. It is a small rural city of approximately 200,000 people, and it is surrounded by scattered villages in and around the mountains nearby. Unemployment at that time was rampant. Officially, we were allowed into this closed region so that Dean and his company could complete one manufacturing plant and then update and refurbish two others, along with updating the mine. Once those jobs were complete, he was asked to remain and to manage the operation of both plants for two years while a team of nationals could be trained. Jobs, money, and goodwill poured into this small city, and with it came entree into the dinner parties and homes of local government officials. They soon became our friends, and we were given freedom to move into company housing, walk the city streets, and to make friends with our neighbors. The following stories are taken from my journal, from letters and my newsletters written during our time in Linjiang. It is my hope that they show you God's faithfulness to us and to me and give you some idea of the love he showers on us and the people he has given into our care. I have learned that the best way to thank him for his everlasting love to me is to serve him to the very best of my ability and to remember that he provides for my strength and for my protection in times of trouble, that only he can complete the work he calls us to. I live expecting miracles. Travel back with me as I relive some of the miracles of that time. June 1995. Finally arriving after Dean's and my three-day journey to Linjiang, I collapsed in exhaustion on the hard Chinese bed in the bedroom of our suite in the Yalu River Hotel. It was the finest that Linjiang City had to offer, and we were grateful to have arrived there safely. The overhead lights cast an eerie yellow glow on concrete walls. Insects hummed as they flew unheeded through screenless windows. They were opened wide to allow some circulation of the clammy, sultry air. I fell asleep listening to the sounds from the karaoke bars across the Yalu River on the island. Raucous laughter and loud music could have been a lullaby as quickly as I fell asleep. I remember feeling something softly settle on my face and I awoke immediately. I tried to open my eyes but couldn't see. Something black and alive was covering my face. I screamed for Dean in the adjoining room. He came running, as did the hotel staff from the hallway outside our door, along with several passers-by who heard my cries from down four flights of stairs. A startled black moth as large as a dinner plate flew quietly out of the window as everyone in the rooms and hallway had a good laugh at the expense of the migrant, or foreigner. Thus the stories about me in and around Lin Zheng began. I was the first American woman to ever travel there, and I provided much entertainment for our new friends. 
Somehow the men who had come there to work were not nearly as entertaining. They chuckled as I struggled to eat food I couldn't recognize with chopsticks that took forever to manage well. Public restrooms were a special challenge in God's strength, and the language, shopping for shoes with American-sized feet, the Chinese customs were all very challenging. I hugged new friends there regularly for a long time before I realized that Chinese people do not hug. Bless them, they had been hugging me back, and even the vice mayors with whom I worked regularly greeted me with one. My dear friend, Pastor Zhang, of the brave Chinese church in Linzhung, often says, If you depend upon Jesus, your enemy will become your friend. I remembered that quote as I began my first government interview in Linzhung. Do you believe in Jesus? The crowded room stilled. The vice mayor shifted his weight, cleared his throat, folded his soft, pudgy hands onto his heavy belly, and waited for my answer. In an instant, the pleasantries of the meeting ceased. Black eyes around the room bored into me. Yes, I answered quietly. I not only believe in him, but at home I teach about him at my church. I am your friend, and I will do everything that I can to be a good guest in your home. I want to help you and your people here. I can return to the U.S. and seek donations to help to feed your children, especially your orphan children. I know that I will raise some money, but if you allow me to go to the people I know at the churches because of their faith, I will raise a lot more money. The decision is yours. It is up to you. Do what you can, he said. Two days later, an early morning call came into our home that the locals called the Baishu Villa. It was a lovely two-story home on the banks of the Yalu River. The caller identified himself as the vice mayor's driver and announced that the vice mayor was on his way to pick me up and take me to meet an orphan. I dressed quickly and had barely finished breakfast when the vice mayor arrived at the gate along with a young translator, Miss Lu Haiyan, who had just befriended me as well. They came, along with a number of other officials, in three large black Mercedes sedans. Men in black suits spilled out and lined up single file in our walled-in front yard. I began to smile and shake outstretched hands. I was ushered into the second car and joined by Miss Lou. As we drove away, much too fast, I realized that Dean would have no idea where I was, nor would anyone I knew except my new friends in the black suits. I prayed quickly and then settled into my seat, feeling his peace settle over me. My Heavenly Father knew exactly where I was, and Dean and I were both safe. The car I was in careened down narrow village streets while chickens, geese, and children darted through doors and gates seeking cover. In time I would grow accustomed to this kind of travel, but that morning I likened it to Mr. Toad's wild ride at Disneyland. The cars began to slow as the lead driver searched for the right house among the many identical simple brick-and-stone dwellings lining both sides of the narrow dirt road. Layers of dust coated them, the stone paths, the wood fences, and even the backs of the giant oxen standing patiently under small lean-to shelters in crowded yards. The fences were fashioned from sticks laced together with twine. Piles of firewood were stacked in the shapes of their small houses. Outhouses stood beside slabs of concrete, suspended across open sewers to provide a walkway to front yards. Our car came to a stop beside an elderly man waiting for us in front of his poor house. He rose from his old three-legged stool to welcome us. We filed through his gate and gathered at the door. As soon as we entered, my eyes slowly adjusted to the dim light and came to rest on the slight form of an elderly woman, partially clothed and lying on a sleeping platform. She was shocked to see us and pulled frantically at some nearby rags to cover herself. She was unprepared and humiliated. 
I tried to gather myself to offer her comfort and to diffuse a difficult situation, but we had obviously done badly in our attempt to help this poor woman. We all had a lot to learn about bringing help to needy orphans of Linjung. The officials left her dark room quickly. I stood quietly beside the edge of her bed and offered her my hand. She refused to take it. Lu Haiyan helped me to say goodbye, telling her that I would be sending her some rice, clothes, and a soft sleeping pallet. We told her how to contact me if she needed any more help. I never heard from her again, but I was comforted in the knowledge that she would eat well that night and sleep more comfortably in new pajamas on a soft bed. I had done what I could that day. We left her home as abruptly as we had arrived, and the vice mayor walked me to his car. I asked him how this had happened. I said that I had been told that everyone in China had plenty of rice to eat and clothes to wear. I also said that I had expected an orphan child to care for and was surprised to find a poor elderly woman. He answered, She is an orphan, and the elderly man is her brother and also an orphan. I never saw this need before. The vice mayor never came with me again, but he remained a strong voice of support with the local government. Word spread quickly of the eccentric American woman who wanted to make friends and who was offering to help the poor people, especially orphan children, some elders included. Nearly two weeks later, Lu Haiyan came from one of her daily morning visits. She was instructed to visit me by her employer, the Linjung Government Water Bureau. In exchange for her gift of translating for me, I was asked to help her with her English skills. We soon became good friends, and I looked forward to her regular visits. Interestingly, she was given permission for me to use the Bible as a textbook. One day, we were working hard together when a call came in from the Lao Sandai Primary School. They had a child who was desperately in need of help. They wondered if I would come. I quickly packed up a bag of food from our pantry and called Dean for the use of a jeep and driver, and we left for Lao Sandai. It was a short drive, less than thirty minutes, and the springtime mountain views were breathtaking. Two school officials waited for us at the gate to the large schoolyard and walked quickly ahead of our jeep to the office of the principal. We were greeted with gracious Chinese hospitality, handshakes, and offers of refreshment. As we were seated comfortably in this principal's office, a little girl was brought in to meet me. She was beautiful, but so terribly sad. Asked to tell me her story, she began to tell us, through her tears, of the night just weeks before when the terrible Yalu River flood had washed away her mother and father, their home, and everything they owned. Having gotten their children safely to high ground, her parents had returned to the house to save the family television. She spoke of her little brother standing beside her and of holding his hand while they watched together. I asked her if her brother could join us, and he was quickly brought in to meet us. They also brought in another little girl whose story was told to us by her teacher. She was the eldest of two children of a local farmer who had a crippling kind of arthritis and was unable to work to support his family. The poor wife was attempting to operate their small farm alone, the children being too young to help. They were struggling to provide both food and tuition money for school. I asked if Lu Haiyan and I could please visit the homes of the children and we were quickly invited to join the children, their teachers, and the school principal to walk to their homes. We dried tears, collected little hands, and walked together down a narrow village road toward their houses. It was a beautiful sunny day and we enjoyed the warmth and the sights of the sweet place. Neus, or cows, grazed on fresh new grass in their enclosures. Windows were freshly washed and lined in new blue paint which shone and gave us small peaks inside the small brick houses. Chickens roamed free and geese flapped and honked to announce their visit. 
Small brown dogs on ropes or chains in their yards barked, and our children chattered happily as we walked. Suddenly I realized that I had seen this all before. Of course, that was impossible as I had never been there before, but I had seen it all exactly as it was. I realized that I was living the vision that I had been given over a year ago while still at home in Santa Maria. Every detail was the same. Even the smells and sounds here were familiar. I knew this place. The only difference was that I had seen babies on window sills, and these little hands I held belonged to small children. So, small children it would be. I knew that this day was a miracle, and that, somehow, these children would be given to my care, the care of the ministry to come, and so it was. I met the elderly grandparents who had taken in their two grandchildren after the deaths of their son and daughter-in-law. The grandmother was blind, and the grandfather, tall and proud, was working again after having retired years ago. He struggled to provide even the necessities, and their larder was totally empty. We offered some of our food, with a promise to return with more very soon, and to provide school tuition for both children. Dean and I took our first two orphans under care that day. The three children took us to the next house, which belonged to a sweet and loving couple. The father was indeed suffering from a crippling type of arthritis, and he was literally bent in half from it. He struggled to walk, and that day he sat on the family's sleeping platform while we chatted. His daughter ran to find her mother and returned with her and her little brother as well. Their home was neat and clean and, although very spartan, it smelled of a good dinner cooking, and I noticed chickens in the yard. The lovely mother looked tired but determined and offered us her only refreshment, hot water to drink. I was given a place to sit next to the father on the kang, or sleeping platform, next to the window in the living room. Resting on the window sill, I noticed a Bible. I was shocked. Not easily acquired in this part of China, I wondered at the lovely worn book lying on the window for every passerby to see. He saw my look and placed his hand on top of it with a smile. Quietly, I pulled my gold cross from underneath my shirt. We exchanged a knowing look, acknowledging a common bond. Again, we left a small gift of food with the promise to return with more, and also with money to pay the school tuition for each child. We were to learn later that we had taken on the care of the two children of Pastor and Mrs. Zhao, two of the bravest people I have ever met. Within a matter of weeks, Dean and I had agreed to provide for nine children. With three of our own in a university back home in the States, this was becoming a stretch for our budget, and we realized that it was time to seek the help of our family and friends. Winter, 1996 Returning to Linzhang, China, after Christmas with our children in California, I remember scraping ice off the windows inside our jeep with my MasterCard. Dean smiled wryly and said, At least it's still good for something here. Certainly it won't buy you much. Huddled together for warmth in the back seat of our Beijing jeep, we watched out of our frosty windows as the terrain changed dramatically. As we left the bustling city of Chengcheng where our plane had landed, and were driven through the flatland village communities, we finally arrived at our beloved mountain villages and the small city of Lingzheng, where time rolled back hundreds of years. Bumping over frozen dirt roads, life in rural China passed by, and our feet grew numb from the cold coming through the floorboards. Even as the heater worked furiously to warm us, the terrible cold temperature outside, our driver said 30 degrees, penetrated our down parkas and thermal clothing inside the car. Having been raised in Colorado, we were well versed in cold climate conditions, but this ferocious cold was much worse. There was no escape from it. How, we wondered, can the people we watched out of the windows survive? There were farmers huddled on loaded wagons pulled by patient oxen or mules, all covered with a fine layer of fresh snow. 
The animal's fur was frozen in little spikes of ice hanging from their underbellies, and their frosty breath formed plumes of white around their ice-encrusted whiskers. There were children without coats or boots trudging beside mothers burdened with buckets of water that froze while they carried them. There were elderly men and women with small children digging through community ash heaps looking for something to burn in their small stoves. I learned that there was often no money for both food and coal, and that many families had to choose which to buy. The poverty and suffering that my husband and I witnessed during the years that we worked and lived in Linjung changed us. We knew then, as we know now, that we were called to work for his children there, for his good and perfect purpose. We have since moved back into our comfortable home on the central coast of California, but we continue to work to build and to grow the ministry called Threshold Ministries Incorporated that grew out of our love for the people of Linjung. We have since moved back into our comfortable home on the central coast of California, but we continue to work to build and to grow the ministry called Threshold Ministries Incorporated that grew out of our love for the people of Linjung. These days we commute there for regular staff training, encouragement giving, decision making, and government liaisons, and we depend upon our loving staff there to provide the care. We do fundraising, friend making, and prayer support here in the U.S., along with any army of generous friends. Once in a while, a friend or two will join us on a trip over there. It is lovely to watch their hearts open up to our children and to witness our U.S. friends join us in love with the people we work with and serve there. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 Dean and I flew home soon afterward and began to meet with our pastors and friends from our home church, Orcutt Presbyterian Church. I gave a few talks there and to other churches, wrote a few letters, received approval from a group of local pastors, and the money began to arrive along with a small army of U.S. and Chinese helpers. There was enough provision to purchase nine tons of rice to deliver the following summer to the poor children and families of Linjung City and surrounding villages. When we returned, we made personal deliveries of one 110-pound bag of rice at a time, one house at a time, gathering needy children and orphans who needed care as we went. Soon afterward, in November of 1997, Threshold Ministries Incorporated became a registered 501c3, a non-profit organization, and our ability to serve in that hard place was established. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy, and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. Psalm 72, 12-14 Today, Hope House for Children stands tall and strong at the end of a small island near the China side of the mighty Yalu River. This river divides China and North Korea by approximately 200 yards at the place where Linjung City rests on its banks. It is the most unlikely place to build an orphanage for so many reasons. To think that we, an American ministry, were given this property to build on by the Linjung mayor is beyond remarkable. Over the years, he became a good friend with each of us respecting the other. Following what I believed to be direction from the Lord, in the spring of 2002, I asked for an appointment with the mayor to discuss the building of an orphanage for the children of Linjung. He agreed to meet with me and my then assistant and translator, Lu Haiyan. He welcomed us warmly from behind his giant carved rosewood desk. After pleasantries were exchanged, he leaned back, folded his hands on his chest, and asked politely what he could do for us. I remember the shock on his face when I told him that I would build an orphanage for him if he would donate the land on which to build it. There was a painful quiet while he absorbed this request. He knew the need and respected me enough to consider the request. He began to pepper us with questions. How large? How soon could you begin? Would you agree to pay for the project along with the furnishings, underground utilities, heat, and water? 
Would Dean Reynolds be the one responsible for the construction? Would you agree to pay for all maintenance and operational costs? Would you agree to care for the orphans in entirety? Satisfied with my answers, he considered yet a while and then offered two properties from which to choose. One was land built on landfill piled into the edge of the Yalu River. The other was the lovely land we did choose on the tip of the island belonging to China, which rested just a little nearer to China than it did to North Korea. He smiled as he relaxed, and then he sighed heavily. Will you paint it pink? I like pink. And can you make it like Cinderella's castle in Disneyland? Who knows how much we have influenced the growth of the church, but we know that we have had a profound influence in the lives of the children we have sponsored and the families we have helped. Some of them do love us, and perhaps there are many who now love God. Surely they have been blessed by him. I assured him that it would be pink indeed, but that I would need the help of an architect builder and lots of money and help donated from our friends to give him his castle. He replied confidently, All of the people of Linjung will come to love you. Then, more soberly, he added, They'll want to join your church. Then what will I do? I just smiled at him. He knew in his heart that what he had said was true. Note. The small Linjung church then had less than two hundred members and met for Sunday worship in a Quonset hut tucked away on the back side of the city. Today it has over thirteen hundred members and has built a beautiful church that is very much like the building we built for the city and is in the middle of the city. Okay, he said, let's go to lunch. He rose from behind his desk and escorted us to his waiting black official car. We enjoyed a generous lunch together, shook hands, and the next morning his personal friend and builder arrived with the architectural plans for what is now Hope House for Children, a cross between Cinderella's castle and a cathedral. We painted it pink, and it remained that color for fifteen years, until the current mayor took his position and painted it purple. No matter the color, it is a building that is strong and safe, today resembling a cathedral more than a castle. It is a refuge for our beautiful orphaned and abandoned children, the pride of the Linjung, it is a gift from God. One day, in 2002, not long after my visit with the mayor, I was called about a little boy who had been discovered living in the back of a village video rental store. The local authorities had taken him to the primary school and had given him their care. They called for us for help, as they were ill-equipped to care for this child. Three of our friends from the U.S. were visiting us at that time, and we invited them to join us to visit the school and to see if we could offer some help. The child's father had died when he was nine years old, and his mother abandoned him shortly afterward. His only living relative, a grandfather, had then cared for him as long as he was able on his poor hilltop farm some twenty miles from this school. Now the grandfather had become too old to care for him, and together they had walked those twenty miles to the village where his grandfather abandoned him and returned home. Afraid, the little boy ran away and found a hiding place in the back of a video store. He lived there undiscovered for a few days, but was eventually found and given over to the school authorities. The teachers took pity on him and, with the help of contributions from the other students, they tried to provide for his care. They brought scraps of food and bits of used clothing. They did what they could. He slept at night with the school's old guard and the eight-foot square concrete guard shack on a bedroll that had been pushed into a corner. Surprised, I noticed that in another corner there stood food supplies delivered the month before from Threshold or organization. Bags of flour, rice, beans, and a two-gallon container of cooking oil stood unopened. Eyes questioning, I turned to Lu Haiyan. Quietly, she replied, There is no way to cook the food. There was no stove, no running water. One bare light bulb dangled amid cobwebs from the ceiling. I saw the discouragement in the eyes of our staff, and I heard it in their voices as they tried to explain to me why they had not been able to do more for this small boy. They had tried to find a family to care for him, and had counted on the school to do more, but no one was willing. They had done their best. 
Along with other children we knew whose needs were just as critical, this child needed our orphanage to be completed quickly. In the end, the staff worked out a plan with a restaurant across the street to feed this child good meals three times a day. We commended the guard for his care and offered him occasional meals as well for his trouble. They eventually found a family willing to help him, and they housed our sweet boy until we were able to take him home to Hope House. Once he arrived there at Hope House, he was joined by eight brothers and sisters and four mamas and babas, or fathers, who took turns staying with the children for forty-eight-hour shifts. They each were given their own bed in a room freshly painted with huge windows overlooking the river. They shared rooms with their siblings, boys in one bedroom, girls in another, all decorated in fresh linens with a large stuffed teddy bear for each bed. They were invited for the lovely grand opening ceremony, and they each were given a new bike with a bell. Spring 2004 If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, they would have swallowed us alive. When their wrath was kindled against us, then the waters would have overwhelmed us, the stream would have gone over our soul, then the swollen waters would have gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth, our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 124 Hope House for Children today is indeed a very large building that now stands on the tip of the island in the Yalu River. Nearer to the Chinese banks, it is still only 150 yards from North Korea. We built an orphanage and an American ministry headquarters literally a stone's throw from North Korea. You can well imagine their discomfort, but the people of Lin Zheng and the mayor and his friends in government were delighted with it. We held an enormous grand opening in the spring of 2004 and celebrated with everyone who had been involved. Many of the Threshold Board of Directors and other American friends attended, as did our staff, our children, the Linjung government, and officials from neighboring cities. It was a day of great celebration. There were, however, challenges to come. A long-time destination for recreation and entertainment, the island began to draw people of all walks of life. Once, a beautiful park-like place with trees, walks, and benches to rest on while watching the mighty Yalu River roll by, it gradually became a different kind of entertainment destination by night. Nightclubs and karaoke bars with red lanterns and raucous music sprang up to spoil the sweet place. Our children with their sentinel mamas or babas walked home from school past buildings used for this evening entertainment. Sometimes the guests and employees of these places of business would call out to them as they hurried past. We began to pray in earnest for the protection of our children, that God would close their eyes and ears to the sounds and sights right outside their locked front gate. One evening at home in the U.S. I received a call of alarm from Lu Haiyan. The North Korean government had called the Linjung government to give warning that in one hour they would open the floodgates to their dam upriver from our island. Heavy rains, they said, had filled their reservoir, and they needed to let the water out right away. We now had 19 children housed in Hope House directly in the path of the oncoming flood. We were given precious little time to rescue them. The mamas and babas grabbed what they could quickly and hurried the children to our modest guest house four floors up in an apartment building nearby that faces the Yalu River. Everyone watched from the windows as a wall of water engulfed the island and swept around Hope House and over the tops of our neighbors' establishments. Every morning everyone would rush to the windows upon awakening to see if the Hope House still stood. It took days for the water to recede. During that time, the Threshold family and friends prayed. First, we gave thanks for our staff and children and our neighbors on the island. Then we asked for the foundation of our great building to withstand the flood. 
When we were finally allowed to return, we were astounded to see that the nightclubs and karaoke bars had all been swept away, but that Hope House had stood. Freshly washed, it had only two or three inches of clean standing water on the ground floor's ceramic tile. A quick mopping took care of that, and after careful checking of the foundation by inspectors, we moved our children back home. Our trees recovered quickly, and even most of the flowers in our garden sprouted and bloomed again. The red lanterns never returned. The island is now, once again, a huge park with mature trees and vast flower gardens. It is a place that people travel hundreds of miles to visit, to take wedding photos, to let children play, and to watch the mighty Yalu sweep past. Today, once again, we have peace, and we have learned to trust God to protect our children. God is so good. In 2005, I wrote in my journal, Today we load our four American guests, my daughter Melissa, and members from the church where she was working as associate pastor in Wichita, Kansas, along with Lu Haiyan, now director of China Operations, and myself into two rented jeeps. I quickly checked the tread on the tires, shot up a short prayer, and climbed into a back seat. As we headed up the first mountain, the gentle morning rain increased to a pounding thunderstorm. It was not a good day to travel, we all agreed, but a child in crisis was waiting for us and there was no predicted break in the weather soon. As we turned off the main road and traveled through the first small village, the poverty of this mountain community assailed us. We saw sheets of stretched clear plastic used to cover windows and thatched roofs on leaning sod houses, along with vile open sewers spewing garbage out onto the road. Our drivers maneuvered our jeeps from this poor road onto a rough track that quickly became a quagmire. The mud sucked at the tires of our jeeps and potholes jarred our bodies while scattering our carefully bundled provisions. We were driven through the numbing poverty of the first mountain village. We continued until our drivers gave up and then we left the jeeps and walked. Umbrellas raised against the sky, we giants stepped over rows of crops, taking care not to crush even a single plant that will produce food in the future. Lu Haiyan tried to cover her shoes in plastic bags, but the sucking mud tore them off, and we teased her gently to lighten the mood. She and the others continued without complaint. A little girl was waiting for us in front of her family's sod house. Tears mingled with rain and washed her face. Her lips quivered as she tried to smile. I opened my American stranger's arms to her, and she fell gratefully into them while her older sister glared defiantly from a distance. Her mother had just been taken to a mental hospital— her older sister had been pronounced psychotic by doctors, and her father was considered a slow thinker. This shining child was the only healthy member of her family, and the local government had asked us to rescue her and to take her to Hope House. We agreed and offered to help her pack her things. She found a tired brown school bag, her sole possession, but she owned not one thing to put inside it, not a comb or brush or sweater or book, nothing. We joined her as she said an emotional goodbye to her broken little family, all of us were in tears, and we promised to return for visits with her sister and father and to bring provisions for them. We invited them to visit her, but we doubted in our hearts that they ever would. As we walked back to our waiting jeeps, we planned for the delivery of the food, clothing, and other necessary supplies for the next outreach program delivery to needy children and families within our flexible 250-mile radius. This family was now to be included in the delivery— these deliveries happen quarterly and alternate between food, clothes, hygiene products, school fees, and supplies. They often include little chicks in the spring, firewood in the fall, and warm coats, boots, and blankets in the winter. Sometimes supplemental medical care, eyeglasses, or teacher intervention are given, or emergency care as needed. Once settled in the comfort of my jeep, I spoke hope to the little child as she snuggled into me. I told her of the brothers and sisters waiting for her in her new home. I told her of her new, warm little bed of her own and her own big, soft teddy bear on her pillow. 
I told her that there would be a blanket made just for her by a loving American woman and sent just for her. I described her upcoming dinner tonight, and that she would be able to have all that she wanted to eat, with fresh vegetables, meat, rice with beans, and dried fruit from America. I also shared with her that she would be able to go to school, now in new clothes just like other children, and that she would have a new school bag filled to the top with books and supplies to help her learn. On top of all this, I let her know that she would be cared for by loving mamas and babas, and surrounded by sisters and brothers. She would be safe. While we rode home, the rain stopped and a giant rainbow broke through the clouds. Smiling, she pointed to it and told me that her name, Fu Kai Hong, means rainbow. This was most surely a love note from God. Journal Entry, Spring 2015 The ice is breaking up on the Yali River today. Rolling torrid water presses against the constraints of the heavy cover of ice. I remember lying in bed at night in the quiet of the dark, listening to the sound of its cracking, and recalling how it mimicked the rifle fire from North Korean military drills on the opposite bank. Soon, huge boulders of ice will be turned into small pieces and carried away in the spring floods. Every year the Yalu River escapes its banks and terrorizes the small communities that line them. Large trees, pieces of buildings, dead animals, and in some years whole farms and families will be carried along in its wake. No lover of mankind, this river is yet a river of life. As the boundary between China and North Korea, the Yalu River grudgingly provides its water without prejudice. Deceptively calm in summer, it fills drinking wells, transports loggers, receives the debris of its cities, waters its fields, and becomes a huge wash basin for children, chickens, laundry, and the occasional jeep. In the winter, it becomes a frozen highway. Frustrated guards along its banks still discover fresh tracks in the morning snow, revealing the successful nighttime escape of another North Korean refugee. Only the Yalu knows how many of the escapees failed or succeeded to reach the safety of the other bank. 2017. Today it has been 21 years since Dean and I, along with a small army of American and Chinese friends, established Threshold Ministries Incorporated after having been called of God as tent makers to this remote area of northeast China. Threshold Ministries Incorporated became a registered 501c3 in November of 1997. We began to minister in Linjung in the winter of 1996. We were the first Americans to ever live there, and I was the first American woman to ever go there. Dean had arrived in the spring of the first 100-year flood in 1995, and I had joined him there a year later. What began for me as visions of orphans lost in alleys grew into a small group of Christian friends helping those very orphans and other victims of the Yalu River flood. Bow Story while we were still living in the Baishu, stories began circulating of a small boy who had been in a serious train accident. The whole community worried that the child might not live and marveled that he had survived at all. I couldn't bear to think of it. Days and then weeks passed and we would hear occasional updates. He was healing, but his injuries were terrible, the loss of both an arm and a leg. Poor little boy, they would say, his life is over. What hope does he have now? Eventually we heard that he had returned home to his village. His parents had become impoverished, they said. They borrowed money from everyone they knew to help pay the medical bills. How will they continue to care for this boy? Dean's secretary was the first to approach me on his behalf. She brought her new baby to show me, and as we played with her child, she told me of her recent visit to her neighbors, the parents of the injured child. He was so lovely, so brave, she told me. He is learning to walk on crutches. No, I said too quickly. I'm sorry, but his care is far beyond our ability to pay. 
It would take everything our small company has, and we would have nothing left for all the other children. I am terribly sorry, but the answer is no. She was very disappointed, but thanked me for my time. We hugged, and she left with her pretty baby. But I could not stop thinking of this small boy. I did try, but his name, An Bo Chang, came to me throughout the coming days in prayer and also during odd moments. It made no sense, but I knew something was happening in my spirit, and I began to think about loving him even before I ever met him. Of course I did meet him. I agreed to meet him with a plan to take him under care as a sponsored child for Threshold Ministries, Inc. He and his family would receive regular deliveries of food, and he would receive clothing, basic medical supplies, and also would have his tuition paid at school for as long as he would be allowed to attend. Handicapped children in rural communities have restricted attendance in public schools, usually only within walking distance, and most only finish middle school. We drove to his house through a sea of mud and a labyrinth of narrow village streets. As we rounded a curve, there on the crest of a low hill stood a beautiful eight-year-old boy in a red sweater, standing tall on one leg, and holding wooden crutches. He had come to meet us. He waved to us to follow him and began to race ahead of our jeep through the mud on his crutches. We shouted an invitation to join us in the car, but he threw his head back, laughing at his challenge for us to catch him. That was our bow. Just try to catch me, bet you can't. And indeed, we couldn't. Well, people are still trying to catch up to Bo to this day. A born leader, a man of God, his smile lights up a room. A great comforter, wise and patient, his friends and co-workers often seek him for his wisdom. His American family, Mom, me, Dad, Dean, and his two brothers, Rob and Brad, and his sister, Melissa, all adore him. His Chinese family still communicates with him, but has given him over to us years ago. They simply couldn't cope. A handicapped person in China has very little help or hope. Bo is blessed to live, work, and worship God in this country. He is an American citizen now. Shriners Hospital invested years of care, five major surgeries, and physical and occupational therapy, often for months at a time. Finally, they've provided him with prosthetics. One of his doctors once told him that there was nothing a person with two arms and two legs could do that he could not. Bo believed him. Staff members and other patients flocked to join us to watch Bo stand and walk for the first time, and many shed tears of joy. He graduated from St. Joseph's High School in Santa Maria, California, as the class valedictorian, then from Yale University with an engineering degree. Today he works as a biomedical engineer and lives in Littleton, Colorado. He has recently returned from a skiing trip with friends. That's our boy. God is good, always. Threshold Ministries, Inc. Today Dedicated to the impoverished children and their families in and around Linjiang City, Jilin Province, People's Republic of China, we operate a sponsorship program for 244 children in our outreach program today. The number fluctuates as our children graduate or as new children are brought into our programs. Our staff in China visits every sponsored child in their home during the summer and winter school holidays. Through these visits, they can observe the living conditions firsthand and address any immediate needs for the family. Throughout the rest of the year, our children are visited monthly at their schools, and their teachers are asked to give an update on their progress. The teachers often use this time to recommend new children to be considered for care. We provide food deliveries of rice, flour, dried beans, cooking oil, and salt, often supplemented with fresh or dried fruit and dried or frozen fish and meat. In addition, we provide for school tuition, school supplies, and clothing suitable for each season, for example, warm coats, boots, blankets in winter, along with hygiene products. We have also delivered wheelchairs, cows to village farmers, and in spring we deliver baby chicks to be raised for eggs and meat. 
In Hope House for Children today, we now have a total of 39 orphaned or abandoned children. There are 22 girls and 17 boys. In 2016, 20 of our children graduated from university, college, or technical school, and 22 students entered into the university system. To date, we have had 256 children graduate from one of these high-level schools. Their lives have been transformed and the cycle of poverty broken. They send help home when they go to work and whole villages have been helped by one successful child. These children not only have the opportunity to become self-sustaining, productive citizens, but they have also witnessed the love of God through the faithful love and provision of these men and women who have demonstrated that love faithfully to them. Although we are not yet allowed to speak our faith aloud or to teach it in this place, we trust that our work speaks of our trust, love, and hope in God to provide for their needs, and of our Chinese current staff of twelve, eight or have now come to the Lord. And of our Chinese current staff of twelve people, eight have now come to the Lord and attend the Linjung Church regularly. As the old lyric says, They'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. As I look back over the years of work, I have learned that hunger kills and that a lack of education perpetuates hunger. Feed them and they will live is the creed of Threshold Ministries, and Dean and I and all of our Threshold family, friends, and staff have also learned that if we educate them, they will feed themselves. Furthermore, if we teach them Christ's love, they will feed others. In closing, I will share that in the end, there is only God. My message is that it is His story. It is His joy, sorrow, and victory. He encourages me when I am afraid to try, and he places the people and the help I need in my path at exactly the right time. He opens impossibly closed doors and then locks them tightly again when it is time. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He provides. One afternoon, in the beginning of our life in Linjung, feeling distraught at the enormity of the poverty and suffering all around me, I sought God in prayer. He showed me a vision, a mountain of rice and an endless line of people waiting patiently for me to feed them. They were holding round plastic bowls in their outstretched arms. I was given a golden spade, and I began to fill the empty bowls one by one with a heaping portion of rice. Each person would nod in thanks as their bowl was filled, and then turn and walk away. The next person waiting would quietly step forward, gaunt and ragged, everyone waited patiently and peacefully. I was clearly being instructed to feed his people. I knew that I would require a mountain of rice. "'Lord, where am I to get a mountain of rice?' I cried. He answered, just ask, and I do. We continue to ask for the needs of the children and families of Linjung. Clearly God wants us to remain, and it is a joy to be there with them. The minute my flight from China departs and we begin the long journey back to California, I begin to dream and plan my return trip to Linjung, to my other home, to the next chapter in this grand adventure. I wonder sometimes, what if I'd never followed God's call and gone? Unthinkable. To God be the glory. Cindy Reynolds, Director, Threshold Ministries, Inc., tmihope.org. This chapter has been narrated by Elizabeth Goss.